Well, hello again. Hope this week was a good week for you all. And uh, if you are visiting with us today, uh, we are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John. Throughout our church year, we take different chunks of time to focus on different parts of Scripture. And this is a season where we focus on the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And we are uh, a few sermons into the Gospel of John. This is a very interesting Gospel. Uh, it says certain things about Jesus that you don't find in other Gospels and excludes other things about Jesus that you find in other Gospels. And um, uh, it, it uh, it's, stands out to me as being interesting in part because it starts with the deity of Jesus and works its way out to his humanity, while other Gospels start with the humanity of Jesus and work their way to his deity. And if you're wondering what the book is about, the author tips his hand at the end where he tells us that he wrote this book so that people would believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And this book has two groups of people in mind. Some people are Christians who are already convinced and they're uh, reading this to learn more about God, to deepen their love for him. And other people are people who aren't Christians and this book is written to give them information about God so they might discover him. And so there's a little bit of something for everyone in this book. We're going to spend a total of six chapters on this before we go uh, back to the Old Testament. And the topic we're reflecting on this morning is the subject of discipleship. And to be a disciple of someone is to be an apprentice of someone. It's to attach yourself to someone and to learn from them. And it's, it's a process that's relational, informative. Discipleship is an important theme in Scripture, but it's not unique to the Christian Scriptures. In fact, many world religions have different kinds of disciples and disciplers. One noticeable, noticeable um, uh, discipler that stands out that I've been interested in for a number of years was a particular prince. And this prince lived years ago in a faraway country, and he lived in a palace that his dad built for him, and there was high walls, and his dad was trying to hide him from the suffering of the world. As this young prince grew up in opulence and privilege, completely oblivious to the suffering that happened in the rest of the world. And one day he turned to his chariot driver and he said, sneak me out of these walls. So he went out of the walls and he saw the big wide world for the first time. And he says he saw three things. He saw an elderly man, a sick man, and a dying man. He'd never been exposed to suffering before. And he was shocked and it shook up his whole paradigm of the world. He said, I can no longer be a prince living behind these walls. And he left the walls and went and lived among the people as a monk. And he was an ascetic and gave himself to a life of study and modesty. But these monks didn't really have the answers to the suffering either. And so he said, I need some kind of middle way. I can't live for the materialism of, of royal life, but he can't also live as a monk. And so he sat under a big giant tree that had all these vines growing out of it. And he said, I'm not going to leave this tree until I figure out the mysteries of life. And so days uh, turned into weeks. Until one day, as he was sitting under this tree meditating, he saw insights into his distant future. And he saw insights into his faraway past and even the nature of things. And he was, they call it Bodhi. He was enlightened and awakened. And he became uh, known as the Buddha from that moment on. And the next day he got up and he walked 100 miles and he found a group of people and he preached his very first sermon. And these people who heard his sermon uh, became his very first followers. They were the Sangha. And this uh, small community of people grew and developed and spread all over the world and so it became one of the world's greatest religions. 
a community of disciples of the Buddha. Most religions have some notion of discipleship, and so does Christianity. And the thing that most of them have in common is that you're always disciple of just a guy, somebody who's maybe a representative of God or, or somebody who's smart and wise and knowledgeable, but they're still just a person. But it's very strange and interesting that when you look, up, look at discipleship in the Bible, and you look at the life of Jesus, and when he points at someone and says, come follow me, or he says, who do you say I am? It's actually that person's maker looking them in the eyes saying that. It's very strange. It's very unique. And that's what we're going to think about this morning. What is this biblical view of discipleship? If you have a bulletin with you, we're going to be reading from John 1, verses 43 through 51. We also have uh, some Bibles under your seats. We're going to be referring back to these verses over the next few minutes. Would you join me at verse 43? The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I told you I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, as we meditate on you and your scriptures this morning, would your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path? We pray that your spirit would minister to us now. In your name, amen. We're talking about the subject of discipleship this morning, and this happens to be one of the most personal aspects of the Christian faith. Following Jesus is something that no one can decide for you. Each person needs to settle for themselves that they're going to follow Christ. And all this simply means is that each of us need to have a personal encounter with Jesus himself. The reason for this is because all the things that we depend on will fail us. Our communities will fail us. People will let us down. And each of us needs to come to a point where we've decided for ourselves that Jesus is our comfort, that Jesus alone has our ultimate allegiance. And here's the shocking thing, is it's possible to listen to sermons, it's possible to go to small group, it's even possible to be a leader in the church and to have never and personally encountered Jesus. This personal encounter, this life of discipleship ends up being a critical part of our life together. Our church depends on the reality that we've each seen Jesus and that we share his love with each other. So knowing this, let's consider what are the aspects of walking with Christ, of discipleship. And a good starting point to ask would be, where does this all actually begin? And it begins with Jesus calling us. This is the experience of the disciples. You see it in verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. 
And he said to him, follow me. I love that phrase, found. Jesus was on the hunt for Philip. He was searching for him. Philip didn't go on a journey to find God, but actually God journeyed to find Philip. And when Jesus discovers Philip, he says something very interesting. He says, follow me, which might sound like a wish or a hope, but God is actually commanding him. It's, it's, a, it's a command, an imperative to follow him. The call to discipleship begins with a summons. There's a mosaic I really like in a church called the Harrowing of Hell. It's in uh, St. Mark's in Venice. And it depicts Jesus uh, descending into hell after he's uh, died on the cross. And he's clothed in these bright gold, brilliant colors. And he's this giant figure. And he's uh, uh, kicked down the doors of, of hell. And there's the doors and keys and all this is laying on the ground. And he's standing on the figure of, of the devil. And he's kind of triumphant looking. And he's reaching for Adam and Eve. And it's really interesting how they grab each other. You would think it's, it's Adam kind of giving his hand and the two hands kind of folding into each other as they kind of, as Jesus rescues Adam. And, but that's not what you actually see. You see the opposite. You see Jesus grabbing him on the wrist and yanking him <laughs> out of hell. And the picture has, is this very vivid, colorful description of what discipleship is like. That it's, it's Jesus grabbing us and rescuing us. Discipleship is not an offer that we make to Christ. It's something that he has to invite us on. And it's important that we follow this order. We don't go on a journey to find God, but it's the opposite. While we were lost, God went to find us. It's important that we keep this in mind because sometimes we tend to think that we're saved by our discipleship. That by being committed to Jesus, that by prioritizing him, by focusing on him, Jesus is going to be pleased to go die on the cross for us. But God has a very different order. He doesn't say, if you follow me, I'll go to the cross for you. He says to us, I'm going to the cross for you. Now follow me. He says, you're not saved because you're a disciple. You're a disciple because you understand what I've done to save you. That's the order. I think for a lot of us, it all started like this. There was a time when we would get teared up when we thought about God's grace, when we found it easy to forgive each other, when we found ourselves open and ready for the world, and then something happened along the way. And there's less joy, there's more excuses. We don't want to hang out with certain kinds of people. And we forget what grace meant to us. But the problem is not that we forgot how it all started. The problem is that we forget that grace is what continues to define us. And we fall into a formula where we say it's grace plus something else that makes God pleased with me. But the formula never changes. Just because our lives are more well-adjusted than they used to be doesn't mean that we don't need anything but God's grace in our lives. It's God's grace all the way down. And this is one of the most important things that we need in a life of discipleship, a continued emphasis, a continued anchoring in God's unconditional love for us. It might be natural to, to think of this image of Jesus grabbing us by the wrist and pulling us and ask ourselves, is this something impersonal or maybe even coercive, which leads to our second point, that the discipleship journey is really a journey into seeing God's heart and allowing God to see ours. See ours. It involves a kind of mutual seeing. Nathaniel is the one who illustrates it for us this time. 
After Philip gets hooked by Jesus, he comes to his friend Nathaniel and tells him that they found the one whose scriptures is anticipating. And you catch a glimpse of Nathaniel's heart. It's hopeful yet doubt-filled. It's a mixture. And then Nathaniel goes on to go see Jesus, it says. But before he can see Jesus, Jesus actually sees him. And he doesn't just see him. This is what it says in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This word saw is being used in a deeper way to simply mean he saw him with his eyes. He visually saw him. It means that Nathanael's whole heart, all his troubles, all of his burdens, all of his dreams were seen by Jesus. Nathaniel comes to Jesus, his whole heart is exposed and known. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we are also known, our burdens and our dreams. But the incredible thing is that the reverse is true, that God reveals to us all his dreams for us and the world. You see this later in the Gospel of John in chapter 15. John tells us that we are Jesus' friends and not his servants. It's kind of strange because elsewhere scripture says that we are his servants. What does he mean by this? And he goes on to explain, he says, a servant doesn't know his master's mind, but a friend does. And so he's saying all the dreams, all the hopes, all the longings that God has inside himself for our lives and for our world, he's sharing with us. The whole reason discipleship begins in the heart is because this is where our biggest problem lies. Each of us suffers from a heart flaw that only Jesus can cure. Mark 8, you see, uh, which is probably the most famous chapter on discipleship, Jesus is telling his disciples he wants them to see their own hearts. He says, I see your heart, but do you see it? And he uses all sorts of words like see, look, blind, and so on. And then to emphasize this point, he does all these miracles where he's healing people so they actually begin to see. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples is that they need to see themselves. And this is Maybe the hard, hardest part of it all for ourselves. But if we circumvent this process, then discipleship deteriorates into only a set of rules and disciplines. Central to the life of discipleship is heart transformation. In another famous section on discipleship, Jesus famously says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life from me will save it. Jesus is offering us some kind of life. And it's interesting the word he chooses there. He could have used a word that meant simply physical life, bios, where we get the word biology. But he uses a different word, suke. It means self. He's talking about our deep uh, psychological inner life. He's saying that we have all these old habits, all these old identities, all these old paradigms that God himself is actually going to kill. He's going to put them to death. He's not going to cover over them with new habits. He wants to take our hearts and replace it with his. To be a disciple of Jesus means that our hearts are exposed, but he also changes them as they come to the surface. I naturally think when I, whenever I hear people talking about hearts and feelings and longings that perhaps this person's saying it's all about experience, it's all about feelings. And the problem with this is when we're feeling great, we think we're doing great with God. And when we're feeling bad, we don't think we're doing good with God. And so there is another element that this passage re- reveals to discipleship that corrects this, or at least um, adds another leg to the stool. You see this in verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
what John is revealing is that our discipleship is also directed by Scripture. The disciples were able to look and say, hey, that Jesus, he's the Messiah, not that other guy over there, because they knew the Scriptures, and the Scriptures were pointing to Jesus. And this is what creates a full orb discipleship, that as God is changing us from the inside out with our hearts, it's being directed by Scripture. But saying there's a change or saying it begins with a call doesn't answer what this discipleship actually consists in, which leads to our last point, that discipleship, the core of discipleship, is a life of allegiance lived to Christ. That it means Christ is our master. This is the climax of the passage. After the Jesus dialogues with Nathaniel, the disciples declared to him in verse 49, this is what they said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What the disciples are saying is what makes Jesus worth following is that he's a king. And if that's who Jesus is, what are the responses you have? It's only really two. You either serve him, love him, give him your loyalty, or you set yourself against the king. The very heart of a disciple is someone who follows Jesus as their master. The way uh, discipleship was expressed in the Old Testament, one of the ways you would uh, capture this kind of following was in the phrase, walking with God. And walking with God is a very vivid phrase, and it's supposed to create an image of our mind of one person actually walking after another person. So you have two people, and you could even maybe even picture the, the second person kind of walking in the footsteps of this other person. And uh, this image brings two things to mind about their relationship. The first is that the person in front is in charge. You know, they maybe turn a certain direction, and the person follows them. They kind of take a big step, and the other person takes a big step. And the first person gets to set the terms and the direction for the relationship. But the second is that it involves imitation, pattern setting. That the person in the front is setting up a, a way of acting through their own example. And that the, the follower is not just taking orders or taking distant commands, but they're actually following the lead of the person. There's something very intimate and close in this kind of discipleship. This gives us a clue of what it means to follow Jesus, that he sets the terms, he's our master, but that happens through us following his example. He never tells us to do something that he himself hasn't already done. And the gospels following Jesus can oftentimes be a very literal thing. When Jesus summons someone to follow him, many times they literally just get up and start following him. <laughs> it's kind of comical, kind of comical. but... Um, What's interesting to me is the times, though, in the Gospels when Jesus, it will say he's looking off in the distance, and it will say he's looking towards Jerusalem, and he knows that Jerusalem is his, his destiny. You know, that's, he knows that's where he's going to die. He knows that's where he's going to have the most epic, uh, difficult trials of his life, and then right after it says that, he'll, say, he'll turn to someone. He'll be like, hey, follow me, and I don't think they quite knew what they were getting into, but someone would follow Jesus. And so the call to follow Jesus is not just following his person aimlessly, but it's actually a call to follow him to Jerusalem. It's a call to the cross. It's a call to the resurrection. A couple of days from now, the church calendar uh, will be celebrating St. Telemachus Day. Uh, Telemachus is somebody I recently learned about. He's an interesting person. He lived in the first, uh, excuse me, the fifth century. He was a Roman monk. He was kind of a party guy who became a Christian. And he was in Rome one day, and he was uh, part of this large, excited crowd, and the crowd was going somewhere. And he, he told himself, 
what's going on. I'm just going to follow the crowd. And, and the crowd walks into this large building. It was an arena. And people sit down on, on the seats. And, and everybody's calm. And then all of a sudden, gladiators come out into the middle of the arena. And they start fighting and they start killing each other. And Telemachus was horrified. He was overcome. He thought that we're watching people kill themselves for fun. This is evil. And he was stirred and he was moved. And he got up out of his seat and he walked down the steps. And he crawled over the railing and ran into the middle of the arena. And at the top of his lungs, he shouted, In the name of Christ, forbear! And when the gladiators kind of threw him on the ground. And then he got up. And he looked the gladiators in the eye. And he looked the crowd. And he shouted the exact same thing. In the name of Christ, forbear. And he was knocked down a third time. And he got up. And he shouted, in the name of Christ, forbear. And the emperor looks at one of the gladiators and gives him a little nod. And the gladiator runs him right through the stomach. And Telemachus falls to the ground and he's bleeding out on the sands of the Colosseum. And as people are watching him die, the crowd goes silent. All the cheering is gone. And the gladiators drop their swords and a crowd walks out of the Colosseum. And Telemachus was credited with being one of the people who end the gladiatorial games. I was talking Nate, with Nate about this story, and he shared something I thought was very insightful. When we hear stories like this, we want to ask ourselves, how can I be Telemachus? How am I supposed to be somebody who does these great, courageous things? But in many ways, we're not Telemachus. We're actually the crowd. We're the people on the sidelines cheering, who are excited at the violence. And Jesus is actually Telemachus. And he's the one who runs into the arena and says, in the name of Christ, forbear! And it's his blood that actually ends the violence. And this is what it means to be a disciple. We're not called to be telemachuses. We're not called to fix the world. But we're called to follow Jesus. And we know that whatever we face, he has overcome it. Let's give ourselves to this truth this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the great display of your love and for um, the example of the saints. And we pray that you're Spirit would work on us now to inspire us to your love and to uh, empower us to walk as your disciples. We pray in your name. Amen.